0: Section 3 of Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, Volume 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, Volume 2 by Arthur L. Hayward. The Life of the Famous Jonathan Wild, Thief-Taker As no person in this collection ever made so much noise as the person we are now speaking of, so never any man, perhaps, in any condition of life whatever, had so many romantic stories fathered upon him in his life or so many fictitious legendary accounts published of him after his death. It may seem a low kind of affectation to say that the memoirs we are now giving of Jonathan Wilde are founded on certainty and fact, and that though they are so founded, they are yet more extraordinary than any of those fabulous relations pushed into the world to get a penny at the time of his death, when it was a proper season for vending such forgeries, the public looking with so much attention on his catastrophe, and greedily catching up whatever pretended to be the giving an account of his actions, but to go on with the history in its proper order. Footnote a few additional particulars concerning Wilde may be of interest. Soon after he came to London, he opened a brothel in the infamous Lucaner's Lane, in partnership with Mary Milliner. After a time, they quitted it to take an ale-house in Cock Alley, Cripplegate. He then drifted into business as a receiver and instigator of thefts, organizing regular gangs which operated in every branch of the thieving trade on account of the number of criminals he brought to justice as a result of their disloyalty to himself the authorities winked at and tolerated his proceedings and in january seventeen twenty four he had the impudence to petition for the freedom of the city as some recognition for the good services he had rendered in this direction. A few months later, however, his reputation became sadly blown upon, and in January 1725 he was implicated in an affair with one of his minions, a sailor named Johnson, who had been arrested and had appealed to Wilde for help. A riot was engineered in which Johnson made his escape, But information was laid against the thief-taker himself who after lying in hiding for three weeks was arrested and committed to newgate which he only left to attend his trial and to take his last ride to tyburn end of footnote jonathan wilde was the son of persons in a mean and low state of life yet for all that i have ever heard of them both honest and industrious. Their family consisted of three sons and two daughters, whom their father and mother maintained and educated in the best manner they could from their joint labors. He as carpenter, and she by selling fruit in Wolverhampton Market in Staffordshire, which in future ages may perhaps become famous as the birthplace of the celebrated Mr. Jonathan Wilde. He was the eldest of the sons, and received as good an education as his father's circumstances would allow him. Being bred at the free school to read and write, to both of which having attained to a tolerable degree, he was put out an apprentice to a buckle-maker in Birmingham. He served his time with much fidelity, and came up to town in the service of a gentleman of the long robe, about the year 1704, or perhaps a little later. But not liking his service, or his master being not altogether so well pleased with him, he quitted it and retired to his old employment in the country, where he continued to work diligently for some time. But at last growing sick of labor, and still entertaining a desire to taste the pleasures of London, up hither he came a second time, and worked journey-work at the trade to which he was bred. But this not producing money enough to support those expenses Jonathan's love of pleasure threw him into, he got pretty deeply in debt, and some of his creditors not being endued with altogether as much patience as his circumstances required, he was suddenly arrested and thrown into Wood Street counter. Having no friends to do anything for him, and having very little money in his pocket when this misfortune happened, he lived very hardly there scarce getting bread enough to support him from the charity allowed to prisoners, and from what little services he could render to prisoners of the better sort in the jail. However, as no man wanted a dress less than Jonathan, so nobody could have employed it more properly than he did upon this occasion. He thereby got so much into the favor of the keepers, That they quickly permitted him the liberty of the gate, as they call it, and he thereby got some little matter for going on errands. This set him above the very pinch of want, and that was all, but his fidelity and industry in these mean employments procured him such esteem amongst those in power there, that they soon took him into their ministry, and appointed him an underkeeper to those disorderly persons who were brought in every night and are called, in their cant, rats. Jonathan now came into a comfortable subsistence, having learnt how to get money of such people by putting them into the road of getting liberty for themselves. But there, says my author, He met with a lady who was confined on the score of such practices very often, and who went by the name of Mary Milliner, and who soon taught him how to gain much greater sums than in this way of life, by methods which he until then never heard of, and will, I am confident, to this day carry the charms of novelty to most of my readers. Of these, the first she put upon him was going on what they call the twang, which is thus managed. The man who is the confederate goes out with some noted woman of the town, and if she fall into any broil, he is to be at a proper distance, ready to come into her assistance, and by making a sham quarrel, give her an opportunity of getting off perhaps after she has dived for a watch or a purse of guineas, and was in danger of being caught in the very act. This proved a very successful employment to Mr. Wilde for a time. Moll and he, therefore, resolved to set up together, and for that purpose took lodgings and lived as man and wife. Notwithstanding, Jonathan then had a wife and a son at Wolverhampton, and the fair lady was married to a waterman in town. By the help of this woman Jonathan grew acquainted with all the notorious gangs of loose persons within the bills of mortality, and was also perfectly versed in the manner by which they carried on their schemes. He knew where and how their enterprises were to be gone upon and after what manner they disposed of their ill-got goods when they came into their possession. Having always an intriguing head, Wilde set up for a director amongst them, and soon became so useful to them that though he never went out upon any of their lays, yet he got as much or more by their crimes as if he had been a partner with them which upon one pretense or other he always declined. He had long ago got rid of that debt for which he had been imprisoned in the counter, and having by his own thought projected a new manner of life, he began in a very little time to grow weary of Mrs. Milliner, who had been his first instructor. What probably contributed thereto was the danger to which he saw himself exposed by continuing a bully in her service. However, they parted without falling out, and as he had occasion to make use of her pretty often in his new way of business, so she proved very faithful and industrious to him in it, though she still went on in her old way. "'Tis now time that both this and the remaining part of the discourse may be intelligible to explain the methods by which thieves became the better for thieving where they did not steal ready money. And of this we will speak in the clearest and most concise manner that we can. It must be observed that anciently when a thief had got his booty, He had done all that a man in his profession could do, and there were multitudes of people ready to help them off with whatever effects he had got, without any more to do. But this method being totally destroyed by an act passed in the reign of King William, by which it was made felony for any person to buy goods stolen, knowing them to be so, and some examples having been made on this act, there were few or no receivers to be met with. Those that still carried on the trade took exorbitant sums for their own profit, leaving those who had run the hazard of their necks in obtaining them the least share of the plunder. This, as an ingenious author says, had like to have brought the thieving trade to naught, but Jonathan quickly thought of a method to put things again in order and give new life to the practices of the several branches of the ancient art and mystery called stealing. The method he took was this. As soon as any considerable robbery was committed, and Jonathan received intelligence by whom, he immediately went to the thieves, and instead of offering to buy the whole or any part of the plunder, he only inquired how the thing was done, where the persons lived who were injured, and what the booty consisted in that was taken away. Then pretending to chide them for their wickedness in doing such actions, and exhorting them to live honestly for the future, he gave it them as his advice to lodge what they had taken in a proper place which he appointed them, and then promised he would take some measures for their security by getting the people to give them somewhat to have them restored them again having thus wheedled those who had committed a robbery into a compliance with his measures, his next business was to divide the goods into several parcels and cause them to be sent to different places, always avoiding taking them into his own hands. Things being in this position, Jonathan, or Mrs. Milliner went to the persons who were robbed, and after condoling the misfortune, observed that they had an acquaintance with a broker to whom certain goods were brought, some of which they suspected to be stolen, and hearing that the person to whom they thus applied had been robbed, they said they thought it the duty of one honest body to another to inform them thereof, And to inquire what goods they were they lost, in order to discover whether those they spoke of were the same or no. People who had such losses are always ready, after the first fit of passion is over, to hearken to anything that has a tendency towards recovering their goods. Jonathan or his mistress, therefore, who could either of them play the hypocrite nicely, had no great difficulty in making people listen to such terms. In a day or two, therefore, they were sure to come again with intelligence, that having called upon their friend and looked over the goods, they had found part of the goods there, and provided nobody was brought into trouble, and the broker had something in consideration of his care, they might be had again. He generally told the people, when they came on this errand, that he had heard of another parcel at such a place, and that if they would stay a little, he would go and see whether they were such as they described theirs to be which they had lost. This practice of Jonathan's, if well considered, carries in it a great deal of policy. For first it seemed to be an honest and good-natured act to prevail on evil persons to restore the goods which they had stole, and it must be acknowledged to be a great benefit to those who were robbed thus, to have their goods again upon a reasonable premium, jonathan or his mistress all the while taking apparently nothing their advantages arising from what they took out of the gratuity left with the broker and out of what they had bargained with the thief to be allowed of the money which they had procured him such people finding this advantage in it the rewards were very near as large as the price now given by receivers since receiving became too dangerous, and they reaped a certain security also by the bargain. With respect to Jonathan, the contrivance placed him in safety, not only from all the laws then in being, but perhaps would have secured him as securely from those that are made now if covetousness had not prevailed with him to take bolder steps than these for in a short time he began to give himself out for a person who made it his business to procure stolen goods to their right owners. When he first did this he acted with so much art and cunning that he acquired a very great reputation as an honest man, not only from those who dealt with him to procure what they had lost, but even from those people of higher station, who, observing the industry with which he prosecuted certain malefactors, took him for a friend of justice, and as such afforded him countenance and encouragement. Certain it is that he brought more villains to the gallows than perhaps any man ever did, and consequently by diminishing their number, made it much more safe for persons to travel or even to reside with security in their own houses. And so sensible was Jonathan of the necessity there was for him to act in this manner, that he constantly hung up two or three of his clients at least in a twelvemonth, that he might keep up that character to which he had attained and so indefatigable was he in the pursuit of those he endeavoured to apprehend, that it never happened in all his course of acting that so much as one single person escaped him. Nor need this appear so great a wonder, if we consider that the exact acquaintance he had with their gangs and the haunts they used Put it out of their power almost to hide themselves so as to avoid his searches when this practice of jonathan's became noted and the people resorted continually to his house in order to hear of the goods which they had lost it produced not only much discourse but some inquiries into his behavior jonathan foresaw this And in order to evade any ill consequence that might follow upon it upon such occasions put on an air of gravity and complained of the evil disposition of the times which would not permit a man to serve his neighbors and his country without censure for do I not quoth Jonathan do the greatest good when I persuade these wicked people who have deprived them of their properties to restore them again for a reasonable consideration? And are not the villains whom I have so industriously brought to suffer that punishment which the law, for the sake of its honest subjects, thinks fit to inflict upon them? In this respect, I say, does not their death show how much use I am to the country? Why then, added Jonathan, should people asperse me, or endeavor to take away my bread? This kind of discourse served, as my readers must know, to keep Wilde safe in his employment for many years, while not a step he took, but trod on felony, nor a farthing did he obtain but what deserved the gallows. Two great things there were which contributed to his preservation, and they were these. The great readiness the government always shows in detecting persons guilty of capital offenses, in which case we know tis common to offer not only pardon, but rewards to persons guilty, provided they make discoveries, and this Jonathan was so sensible of that he did not only screen himself behind the lenity of the supreme power, but made use of it also as a sort of authority, and behaved himself with a very presuming air. And taking upon him the character of a sort of minister of justice, this assumed character of his However ill founded, proved of great advantage to him in the course of his life. The other point, which, as I have said, contributed to keep him from any prosecutions on the score of these illegal and unwarrantable actions, was the great willingness of people who had been robbed to recover their goods, and who, provided for a small matter they could regain things for a considerable worth, were so far from taking pains to bring the offenders to justice that they thought the premium a cheap price to get off. Thus by the rigor of the magistrate and the lenity of the subject Jonathan claimed constant employment, and according as wicked persons behaved they were either trussed up to satisfy the just vengeance of the one, or protected and encouraged. That by bringing the goods they stole he might be enabled to satisfy the demands of the other and thus we see the policy of a mean and scandalous thief-taker conducted with as much prudence caution and necessary courage as the measures taken by even the greatest persons upon earth nor perhaps is there in all history an instance of a man who thus openly dallied with the laws, and played with capital punishment. As I am persuaded my readers will take a pleasure in the relation of Jonathan's maxims of policy, I shall be a little more particular in relation to them than otherwise I should have been. Considering that in this work I do not propose to treat of the actions of a single person, But to consider the villainies committed throughout the space of a dozen years, such especially as have reached to public notice by bringing the authors of them to the gallows. But Mr. Wilde being a man of such eminence as to value himself in his lifetime on his superiority to meaner rogues, so I am willing to distinguish him now he is dead by showing a greater complacence in recording his history than that of any other hero in this way whatsoever. Nor, to speak properly, was Jonathan ever an operator, as they call it, that is a practiser in any one branch of thieving. No, his method was to acquire money at an easier rate, and if any title can be devised suitable to his great performance, it must be that of director-general of the united forces of highwaymen, housebreakers, footpads, pickpockets, and private thieves. Now, according to my promise, for the maxims by which he supported himself in this dangerous capacity. In the first place, he continually exhorted the plunderers that belonged to his several gangs, To let him know punctually what goods they at any time took, by which means he had it in his power to give, for the most part, a direct answer to those who came to make their inquiries after they had lost their effects, either by their own carelessness or the dexterity of the thief. If they complied faithfully with his instructions, he was a certain protector on all occasions and sometimes had interest enough to procure them liberty when apprehended, either in the committing a robbery or upon the information of one of the gang. In such a case Jonathan's usual pretense was that such a person, who was the man he intended to save, was capable of making a larger and more effectual information for which purpose Jonathan would sometimes supply him with memorandums of his own. And thereby establish so well the credit of his discovery as scarce to fail of producing its effect. But if his thieves threatened to become independent and despise his rules, or endeavor for the sake of profit to vend the goods they got some other way without making application to Jonathan, or if they threw out any threatening speeches against their companions, or grumbled at the compositions he made for them, in such cases as these, Wilde took the first opportunity of talking to them in a new style, telling them that he was well assured they did very ill acts, and plundered poor honest people, to indulge themselves in their debaucheries, that they would do well to think of amending before the justice of their country fell upon them, and that after such warning they must not expect any assistance from him in case they should fall under any misfortune. The next thing that followed after this fine harangue was that they were put into the information of some of Jonathan's creatures, or the first fresh fact they committed, and Jonathan was applied to for the recovery of the goods, he immediately set out to apprehend them, and labored so indefatigably therein that they never escaped him. Thus he not only procured the reward for himself, but also gained an opportunity of pretending that he not only restored goods to the right owners, but also apprehended the thief as often as it was in his power as to instances, I shall mention them in a proper place. I shall now go on to another observation, Videlicet that in those steps of his business which was most hazardous, Jonathan made the people themselves take the first steps, by publishing advertisements of things lost, directing them to be brought to Mr. Wilde, who was empowered to receive them and pay such a reward as the person that lost them thought fit to offer. And in this capacity Jonathan appeared no otherwise than as a person on whose honor these sort of people could rely, by which his assistance became necessary for retrieving whatever had been pilfered. After he had gone on in this trade for about ten years with success, he began to lay aside much of his former caution, and gave way to the natural vanity of his temper, taking a larger house in Old Bailey than that in which he formerly lived, giving the woman who he called his wife abundance of fine things, keeping open office for restoring stolen goods, appointing abundance of under-officers to receive goods, carry messages to those who stole them bring him exact intelligence of the several gangs and the places of their resort and in fine for such other purposes as this their supreme governor directed his fame at last came to that height that persons of the highest quality would condescend to make use of his abilities when at an installation public entry or some other great solemnity, they had the misfortune of losing watches, jewels, or other things, whether of great real or imaginary value. But as his methods of treating those who applied to him for his assistance has been much misrepresented, I shall next give an exact and impartial account thereof, that the fabulous history of Jonathan Wilde may not be imposed upon posterity. In the first place, then, when a person was introduced to Mr. Wilde's office, it was first hinted to them that a crown must be deposited by way of fee for his advice. When this was complied with, a large book was brought out. Then the loser was examined with much formality, as to the time, place, and manner that the goods became missing, and then the person was dismissed with a promise of careful inquiries being made, and of hearing more concerning them in a day or two. When this was adjusted, the person took his leave, with great hopes of being acquainted shortly with the fruits of Mr. Wilde's industry, and highly satisfied with the methodical treatment he had met with. But at the bottom this was all grimace. Wilde had not the least occasion for these queries, except to amuse the persons he asked, for he knew beforehand all the circumstances of the robbery much better than they did. Nay, perhaps he had the very goods in the house when the folks came first to inquire for them, though for reasons not hard to guess he made use of all this formality before he proceeded to return them. When, therefore, according to his appointment, the inquirer came the second time, Jonathan took care to amuse him by a new scene. He was told that Mr. Wilde had indeed made inquiries, but was very sorry to communicate the result of them. The thief, truly, who was a bold, impudent fellow, rejected with scorn the offer which pursuant to the loser's instructions had been made him. "'insisted that he could sell the goods at a double price, "'and in short would not hear a word of restitution "'unless upon better terms. "'But notwithstanding all this,' says Jonathan, "'if I can but come to the speech of him, "'I don't doubt bringing him to reason.' "'At length, after one or two more attendances, "'Mr. Wilde gave the definite answer,' that provided no questions were asked and so much money was given to the porter who brought them, the loser might have his things returned at such an hour precisely. This was transacted with all outward appearances of friendship and honest intention on his side, and with great seeming frankness and generosity. But when the client came to the last article, Vidella said, what Mr. Wilde expected for his trouble, then an air of coldness was put on, and he answered with equal pride and indifference that what he did was purely from a principle of doing good. As to the gratuity for the trouble he had taken, he left it totally to yourself. You might do it in what you thought fit. Even when money was presented to him he received it with the same negligent grace always putting you in mind that it was your own act, that you did it merely out of your generosity, and that it was no way the result of his request, that he took it as a favour, not as a reward. By this dexterity in his management he fenced himself against the rigour of the law, in the midst of these notorious transgressions of it, for what could be imputed to Mr. Wilde? He neither saw the thief who took away your goods, nor received them after they were taken. The method he pursued in order to procure you your things again was neither dishonest or illegal, if you will believe his account on it, and no other than his account could be gotten. According to him it was performed after this manner after having inquired amongst such loose people as he acknowledged he had acquaintance with, and hearing that such a robbery was committed at such a time, and such and such goods were taken, he thereupon had caused it to be intimated to the thief, that if he had any regard for his own safety, he would cause such and such goods to be carried to such a place, in consideration of which, He might reasonably hope such a reward, naming a certain sum. If it excited the thief to return the goods, it did not thereby fix any guilt or blame upon Jonathan, and by this description I fancy my readers will have a pretty clear idea of the man's capacity, as well as of his villainy. Had Mr. Wilde continued satisfied with this way of dealing, In all human probability he might have gone to his grave in peace without any apprehensions of punishment but what he was to meet within a world to come but he was greedy and instead of keeping constant to this safe method came at last to take the goods into his own custody giving those that stole them what he thought proper and then making such a bargain with the loser as he was able to bring him up to, sending the porter himself, and taking without ceremony whatever money had been given him. But as this happened only in the two last years of his life, it is fit I should give you some instances of his behavior before, and these not from the hearsay of the town, but within the compass of my own knowledge. A gentleman near Covent Garden who dealt in silks had bespoke a piece of extraordinary rich damask, on purpose for the birthday suit of a certain duke, and the lace man having brought such trimming as was proper for it, the mercer had made the whole up in a parcel, tied it at each end with blue ribbon, sealed with great exactness, and placed on one end of the counter, in expectation of his grace's servant— who, he knew, was directed to call for it in the afternoon. Accordingly, the fellow came, but when the mercer went to deliver him the goods, the piece had gone, and no account could possibly be had of it. As the master had been all day in the shop, so there was no possibility of charging anything either upon the carelessness or dishonesty of servants. After an hour's fretting, therefore, Seeing no other remedy, he even determined to go and communicate his loss to Mr. Wilde, in hopes of receiving some benefit by his assistance, the loss consisting not so much in the value of the things as in the disappointment it would be to the nobleman not to have them on the birthday. Upon this consideration a hackney-coach was immediately called and away he was ordered to drive directly to Jonathan's house in the Old Bailey. As soon as he came into the room, and had acquainted Mr. Wilde with his business, the usual deposit of a crown being made, and the common questions of the how, when, and where having been asked, the mercer, being very impatient, said with some kind of heat, "'Mr. Wilde, the loss I have sustained.' though the intrinsic value of the goods be very little, lies more in disobliging my customer. Tell me, therefore, in a few words, if it be in your power to serve me. If it is, I have thirty guineas here ready to lay down. But if you expect that I should dance attendance for a week or two, I assure you I shall not be willing to part with above half the money. Good sir, replied Mr. Wilde have a little more consideration. I am no thief, sir, nor no receiver of stolen goods, so that if you don't think fit to give me time to inquire, you must e'en take what measures you please." When the mercer found he was like to be left without any hopes, he began to talk in a milder strain, and with abundance of entreaties fell to persuading Jonathan to think of some method to serve him, and that immediately. Wilde stepped out a minute or two, as if to the necessary house. As soon as he came back he told the gentleman it was not in his power to serve him in such a hurry if at all. However, in a day or two he might be able to give him some answer." the mercer insisted that a day or two would lessen the value of the goods one-half to him and jonathan insisted as peremptorily that it was not in his power to do anything sooner at last a servant came in a hurry and told mr wilde there was a gentleman below desired to speak with him jonathan bowed and begged the gentleman's pardon told him he would wait on him in one minute, and without staying for a reply withdrew and clapped the door after him. In about five minutes he returned with a very smiling countenance, and turning to the gentleman said, I protest, sir, you are the luckiest man I ever knew. I spoke to one of my people just now to go to a house where I know some lifter's resort, and directed him to talk of the robbery that had been committed in your house, and to say that the gentleman had been with me and offered thirty guineas, provided the things might be had again, but declared if he did not receive them in a very short space he would give as great a reward for the discovery of the thief whom he would prosecute with the utmost severity. This story has had its effect, and if you go directly home, I fancy you'll hear more news of it yourself than I am able to tell you. But pray, sir, remember one thing, that the thirty guineas was your own offer. You are at free liberty to give them or let them alone. Do which you please, tis nothing to me but take notice, sir, that I have done all for you in my power without the least expectation of gratuity. Away went the mercer, confounded in his mind, and wondering where this affair would end. But as he walked up Southampton Street, a fellow overtook him, patted him on the shoulder, and delivered him the bundle unopened, telling him the price was twenty guineas. The mercer paid it him directly, and, returning to Jonathan in half an hour's time, readily expressed abundance of thanks to Mr. Wilde for his assistance, and begged him to accept of the ten guineas he had saved him for his pains. Jonathan told him that he had saved him nothing, but supposed that the people thought twenty demand enough, considering that they were now pretty safe from prosecution. The mercer still pressed the ten guineas upon Jonathan, who after taking them out of his hand returned him five of them, and assured him that was more than enough, adding, "'Tis satisfaction enough, sir, to an honest man that he is able to procure people their goods again." This, you will say, was a remarkable instance of his moderation i will join to it as extraordinary an account of his justice equity or what else you will please to call it it happened thus a lady whose husband was out of the kingdom and had sent over to her draughts for her assistance to the amount of between fifteen hundred and two thousand pounds lost the pocket-book in which they were contained between Bucklersbury and Magpie Alehouse in Leadenhall Street, where the merchant lived upon whom they were drawn. She however went to the gentleman, and he advised her to go directly to Mr. Jonathan Wilde. Accordingly to Jonathan she came, deposited the crown, and answered the questions he asked her. Jonathan then told her that in an hour or two's time, possibly, some of his people might hear who it was that had picked her pocket. The lady was vehement in her desires to have it again, and for that purpose went so far at last as to offer a hundred guineas. Upon that Wilde made answer, "'Though they are of much greater value to you, madam,' yet they cannot be worth anything like it to them. Therefore keep your own counsel, say nothing in the hearing of my people, and I'll give you the best directions I am able for the recovery of your notes. In the meanwhile, if you will go to any tavern near and endeavor to eat a bit of dinner, I will bring you an answer before the cloth is taken away. She said she was unacquainted with any house thereabouts, upon which Mr. Wilde named the Baptist Head [Footnote, a well-known tavern in Old Bailey]. The lady would not be satisfied unless Mr. Wilde promised to eat with her. He at last complied, and she ordered a fowl and sausages at the house he had appointed. She waited there about three-quarters of an hour, when Mr. Wilde came over and told her he had heard news of her book, desiring her to tell out ten guineas upon the table in case she should have an occasion for them. As the cook came up to acquaint her that the fowl was ready, Jonathan begged she would see whether there was any woman waiting at his door. The lady, without minding the mystery... Did as he desired her, and perceiving a woman in a scarlet riding-hood walk twice or thrice by Mr. Wilde's house, her curiosity prompted her to go near her, but recollecting she had left the gold upon the table upstairs, she went and snatched it up without saying a word to Jonathan, and then running down again went towards the woman in the red hood, who was still walking before his door. It seems she had guessed right, for no sooner did she approach towards her, but the woman came directly up to her, and presenting her pocket-book, desired she would open it and see that all was safe. The lady did so, and answering it was all right, the woman in the red riding-hood said, Here's another little note for you, madam, upon which she gave her a little billet on the outside of which was written ten guineas. The lady delivered her the money immediately, adding also a piece for herself, and returning with a great deal of joy to Mr. Wilde, told him she had got her book, and would now eat her dinner heartily. When the things were taken away, she thought it was time to go to the merchant. Thinking it would be necessary to make Mr. Wilde a handsome present, she put her hand in her pocket, and with great surprise found her green purse gone, in which was the remainder of fifty guineas she had borrowed of the merchant in the morning. Upon this she looked very much confused, but did not speak a word. Jonathan perceived it, asked if she was not well. I am tolerably in health, sir, answered she, but I am amazed that the woman took but ten guineas for the book, and at the same time picked my pocket of thirty-nine. Mr. Wilde hereupon appeared in as great a confusion as the lady, and said he hoped she was not in earnest, but if it were so, begged her not to disturb herself, she should not lose one farthing. Upon which Jonathan, begging her to sit still, stepped over to his own house and gave, as may be supposed, necessary directions. For in less than half an hour a little Jew, called Abraham, that Wilde kept, bolted into the room and told him the woman was taken and on the point of going to the counter. "'You shall see, madam,' said jonathan turning to the lady what exemplary punishment i'll make of this infamous woman then turning himself to the jew abraham says he was the green purse of money taken on her yes sir replied his agent oh la then said the lady i'll take the purse with all my heart i would not prosecute the poor wretch for the world would not you so, madam, replied Wild. Well, then, we'll see what's to be done. Upon which he first whispered his emissary, and then dispatched him. End of section 3 Chapter continues in section 4